This episode is brought to you by Upcase. Now that you've mastered the basics, Upcase makes it easy for you to take the next step. Not a boot camp or a MOOC, we're a finishing school. We'll show you how the best developers around tackle coding challenges, what their backgrounds are, and how they got to where they are. Stick with us, and soon you'll be taking the junior out of your title. Learn more at upcase.com. Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and today I'm joined by author of Crossing the Chasm, as well as many other business and marketing books, Jeffrey Moore. Jeffrey, thank you for joining me. Hi. So I'd love to have a conversation with you about some of the things in Crossing the Chasm. And I know that you work as a consultant now as well, right? And so I'm specifically interested in how you originally wrote Crossing the Chasm, specifically about high-tech industries. So how does it apply to other industries, if at all, and how might it apply to consulting? Well, so the whole idea behind Crossing the Chasm was based on the technology adoption lifecycle. And that model says that when you introduce disruptive innovation into any community, it will self-segregate into different adoption strategies. And you kind of have referred to them. The, we call What we call the early market has two adoption groups in that cohort, the technology enthusiasts who are in it for just the excitement around the technical work, and the visionaries who see the opportunity to re-engineer the world in some way dramatically different. So Mark Andreessen was more of a technology enthusiast. Jeff Bezos was more of a visionary. Steve Wozniak was the original technology enthusiast at Apple. Steve Jobs was the visionary. Both of them move ahead of the herd. One, because they're technologically confident. One, because they're more business confident. But neither of them look to their peers for guidance. They look to themselves for guidance. Mm -hmm. The mainstream market doesn't work that way. Most people are saying, look, this isn't my field. So the first group in the early majority on the other side of the chasm were called the pragmatists. And then they were followed by the conservatives and eventually the laggards. But all three of those groups look to reference points to other people for advice when they're, when they're ad- adopting things. And so the pragmatists in particular use peer referencing a lot. You always hear word of mouth marketing, most powerful form of marketing. Well, that's because pragmatists need to talk to each other before they make buying decisions that have risk associated with them. And of course, disruptive innovation creates risk. So the chasm was that gap between the people that were willing to go ahead of the, of the curve because they trusted their own judgment and they, and they kind of identified with you. Simon Sinek's got a wonderful TED talk and one of the lines in that thing is for an early adopting company is, or an innovative company is, your goal is not to find a customer who needs what you have, your goal is to find a customer who believes what you believe. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot in the early market. But when you move to the mainstream, it's, you're, now you really are looking for a customer who needs what you have. And they're reluctant to, to buy in until they see everybody else do it. So they, they say things like not ready for prime time. You know, I, I want to do a pilot. You know, do you have, can you give me references, da, 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 da. And of course, at that point, you don't really have a, a big reference base, et cetera. So the idea behind crossing the chasm was in order to get the movement started on the other side, you need to get an initial cohort of pragmatists to buy in. And the key idea there was pragmatists in pain are willing to take much more risk than a pragmatist with options. Mm -hmm. And so the notion of looking for pragmatists who were saying, I am not up against, for example, right now, when are people going to adopt um, machine learning or or AI or any of the uh, collaborative filtering or whatever? 
Well, different industries at different times, but retail right now is in pain because Amazon's attacking it directly. So you would expect the retailers to make more disruptive innovation choices now than they would anytime soon. So the pragmatists in pain are the ones who, who say, look, if this disruptive innovation can solve my problem, can get me out of pain, then I'm willing to take a risk on it. But only if you, technology vendor, will commit to solve the entire problem instead of just shipping me your product and saying good luck. So, so in other words, you, the, the key to crossing the chasm was for the technology vendor who had never had to do this before. With the early market, the, the customer met you halfway, mm-hmm. sometimes even more than halfway. But with the pragmatist, the pragmatist can't meet you halfway. They, they don't have the competence and they don't have the orientation. So you have to meet them 100% on their turf, which means you have to bring what we call the whole product, yeah. not just your product. Mm-hmm. And that was the key to winning their success. Once you got it started, once you could get the market started on the other side of the chasm, it would grow organically because other companies would come in. They'd want to help build the market with you and eventually you'd get into other niche markets and eventually you could get into mass markets and, and whatever. And all of that could happen organically if you could get that first beachhead on the other side of the castle. Mm-hmm. Let me give you a specific example that resonates with me from what you just said, which was at ThoughtBot, what we do is we typically build the first version of a product. We are an integrated design and development studio that works with founders or people at larger companies who want to get outside their walls and build a new product. And we typically go from concept to launch. Or we help improve an existing product by using those same strategies. And we typically have not had project managers. We instead have designers and developers who work directly with clients in a self-managed way, very small teams, and our customers we explicitly, it was sort of sort of how we sold it was, we want you to learn these skills about how to manage your own product. And so we're not going to have a project manager involved in between you and the designers and developers because we want you to learn how to do that and to meet us halfway. Uh, and that really worked for the people who want to want to be directly involved in what we're doing and on the team with us. As we move into bigger organizations and bigger projects, even though our team size might not be different, their expectations for what we're going to do and where they're going to meet us are no longer that. They want the whole product, as in project management, as well as design and development services. So that really resonates with me. Yeah, it's very. And by the way, What's interesting about those two models, so I, I'm pretty familiar with a company called IDEO, which yeah. is it's in, in a relatively, you know, not that different a business. Yeah. There's two ways to play this game. One way is to say, you know what, you should never cross the chasm. Mm-hmm. You should say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to limit the growth of my company. Our model was really the model. And by the way, you have kind of an ignition model. Salesforce has a process they call Ignite, which is very similar ideas. You're really trying to catalyze the customer as opposed to outsource innovation from the customer, as mm-hmm. it were. Mm-hmm. And this, that second group wants to really outsource the innovation to you. That's what they're saying. Yeah. Either one's a real business. Mm-hmm. But they're, I think they're very different businesses. And the, you know, thinking about you know, just where you came from and knowing a little bit about the IDO culture, there's a case for saying, you, know, you don't have to try to build a, the world's, world's largest business. You can say, we can do beautiful work and keep ourselves at a certain size. That's what we did in my firm. So my firm, we never grew my firm. We had three different firms. Each one got about 10 people each. Uh, they're still all ongoing concerns. 
But uh, and I've pulled back uh, in the last few years and just I'm sort of chairman emeritus. But but the point is, we wanted to keep the immediacy of we call our form catalytic consulting. So when we, we help people apply frameworks to their problems, like the chasm framework. And so that's a cool business to be in, but it doesn't scale. Yeah, it doesn't create you know these huge projects and research projects. And so it's a conscious choice. If you do choose to cross the chasm, then I think you have you involve project managers. And then I would just be careful to say, I would have two very different business templates. And I would ask account managers to say, which template are we using with this client? Because mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I think you'll have different people and different rhythms. By the way, your pricing should be different. Yeah. Are, are early adopters typically willing to pay more or are they not <laughs> it, well it's really it's quite it's, it has to do with whether it's your sponsor the technology enthusiast or the visionary okay. the technology enthusiast typically does not want to pay more mm-hmm. they just want to get the knowledge and actually they think it all ought to be free um and freemium by the way is a way to get technology enthusiasts I- into the market visionaries are actually willing to pay more if they get the absolute best and more importantly they get it fast and they get it first Okay. So if, if, if when they're making a big bet and they're going fast and first, then they want to they actually pay up. The pragmatist is actually thinking of you as a trade-off against their internal capabilities. Mm-hmm. Part of the problem that pragmatists have in this new world, though, is everything is going digital all at once. They can't get the talent in-house, and right. so you're you're seeing a lot of pragmatists and pain just saying we're so far behind digitally, we just need help to catch up. Yeah, and we're we're seeing that, and. Um... You know, that is not a lot of the things that you talk about in terms of what the cell cycle, like what the message needs to be to those people and and everything really, really resonates. I mean, that is what we're saying. It's like it's like you have a transcript of the phone call. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the thing is that what's going on and, and part of the thing that's made so challenging for, fo- for folks outside of tech right now, because it used to be that technology was about the business. Mm-hmm. And now we're realizing, no, no, it's the fabric of the business. I mean, the, the whole fabric of society is moving to a new hybrid of digital and physical where digital has a much, much more central role to play. And because of cloud and mobile and the API structure and the container structure and the microservices structure and all these things coming up, you can build out much faster than you ever could before. Mm -hmm. You can kind of mash up the enterprise the way we used to mash up on the web. And so as a result, uh, these things are, uh, they're taking much longer and particularly the companies the traditional companies who have a lot of on-premise legacy software systems, that move where you're trying to integrate a legacy on-prem infrastructure with a cloud SaaS infrastructure, that's a really painful move. Mm-hmm. And so anybody who's who started their business post the cloud and post SaaS doesn't have to do that. They just have an extraordinary advantage over these you know, over these other companies. And so the companies have they have money, they have big IT departments. And they're really in a very tough spot. So I think there's a huge demand for people to come in and help them get into this new digital infrastructure as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there definitely is. So one of the things that we arrived at in the conversation with Seth is, or I arrived at, is the realization that we had, in some ways, I think a lot of ways actually, put off crossing the chasm and staying working with early adopters by growing geographically. So we stayed small for the first nine years. We were 20 people just in Boston. And we really resisted growing because we didn't know how to be the kind of company offering the kind of things and having the fulfillment in our work and be bigger. And 
Then we hit upon, well, if we actually looked at it, most of our customers that, especially the ones we really enjoyed working with and were most fulfilled by, we were working locally with them. And so instead of thinking about what would a hundred person thought look like and how terrible that might be, <laughs> we said, well, we know exactly what a four person and a 10 person and a 19 person thought looks like. It's great. And we can see that most of our business is centered around the Boston area. What if we replicated that and created another great thought in another market? And that was in essence, sort of our niche was geographic. Um, Where'd you go next? Where'd you go next? Uh, well, we went to San Francisco yep. and Stockholm, Sweden, because there was someone <laughs> at ThoughtBot who yep. uh, wanted to move there. Yeah. And that actually, Stockholm didn't work out for us, and San Francisco has. But um, when we first went to Stockholm, early signs were, <laughs> uh, this is going to sound familiar to you, we got a bunch of people who knew about ThoughtBot and were waiting to work with us there. And <laughs> we thought that those early sales successes meant that we were going to grow. <laughs> and so we hired yeah. a, we hired a team so that we could match the this size like of the work. Page nineteen <laughs> crossing the cap, yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So then um, those early customers um, went away. We finished the work for them, and we didn't have new customers lined up. And we really had no channel where they were coming in to us. We hadn't built the reputation that scaled to people who had never heard of us before. And there is one thing, the market in Sweden tends to be very pragmatic. And so we just weren't connecting with them and ultimately didn't have the customers and the, the sales to make it work. So the way in which the book would imply that you, so first of all, you, you say, okay, maybe we picked the wrong cities. San Francisco mm -hmm. worked, Boston worked. Mm -hmm. They're obviously tech centers. So you think, well, maybe Austin or, or maybe. Yeah, maybe, so now uh, we're in Austin and New York. Yeah, And New York, actually okay. Raleigh, North Carolina as okay, well. Okay, so, you, so, you, so, so mm -hmm. you, you've now figured out if I'm, if I'm going to play the early market strategy, I need to be where the technology industry mm -hmm. itself is because mm -hmm. they're kind of the, the point of the spear. The next step, if you wanted to go up is, and I, where I'm spending some of my time now is technology disrupted industries where basically they've been put on notice the way Uber's putting on the transportation industry, Airbnb and hospitality, Amazon, obviously, and retail. And now the issue is it's a different problem though. They're not trying to create a highly differentiated offering, what they're trying to do is catch up to mm -hmm. a disruptor. So we call it seeking differentiation, which is what your company has largely helped support mm -hmm. to date. You would be selling neutralization. So neutralization says, just get me to a point where people, be Google Android. You don't have to be iOS. Just be Google Android. You don't have to be the Macintosh. Just be Windows. Right? Just, just be good enough that I can play the game. And I'll play, I'll, I'll win with something else. I won't get from you what I win with. I'll get from you what lets me to get back in the game. Mm -hmm. That's a very different offer. And, and by the way, I'd like the, the same thing you did for my, for my competitor. In other words, pragmatists want to buy the same thing, whereas early market customers always want to buy a different thing. Yeah. We actually, uh, we have a sort of implicit promise to our customers that we won't work with their competitors. <laughs> well, but, but, <laughs> but that's the visionary, that, that's the visionary yeah, promise. Exactly. Yeah, it doesn't do very good if you differentiate me, if you then go take my differentiation to my competitor. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but, but so, which is why I said in some ways you could say, look, this is a great model. 
we are only going to work on differentiation, which means we're largely only going to work with early adopters, which means we're probably going to stay in the tech centers. And then the issue is, and this is where IDEO is actually being challenged. Mm -hmm. So IDEO, like you, had a marvelous technological sort of source of innovation. For them, it was called design thinking. Yeah. But design thinking now has become, everybody and his mother puts out a sign that says design thinking. Yep. So they're having to reinvent themselves in order to stay early market. Because mm -hmm. otherwise, the other thing that they could do, I don't, and I hope they don't, because I, I think their spirit is to stay early market, would be to say, well, we could go mass market with design thinking. But then that's going to look a lot like Martha Stewart going to Kmart, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. So it's interesting and there might there might be this intermediate one of well we do mostly early market but we also do crossing the chasm rescue missions for industries that are under direct attack. Yeah. How do organizations or maybe even individual founders deal with the that tension? You know, I'm certainly feeling it. The episode that that went out, I, I had founders who know me and founders who don't email me and say this resonated with me so much. I, I think we are all feeling that tension when your organization might be trying to cross the chasm. How do you get over that? Or how do you, how do you deal with that? Okay, it's interesting because I spent a bunch of time in the venture community. So there's a classic, mm -hmm. a couple of things to do it. It is a rare founder that is both the early adopter and the person who wants to take it to scale. Bill Gates was, you know, Larry Ellison was, Steve Jobs was. Most aren't. So uh, one classic response in a venture world. Now, in the venture, if, in a venture capital world, there's a kind of implicit commitment when you take the funding that you're going to take this thing across the chasm and scale mm -hmm. it. That, that's kind of what. You, so often, what the founder does is say, you know what? I'm not the CEO of a scaled company. That's not what I love. I'm not a manager. I'm a leader. I'm not a, a scaler. I'm an inventor. And so you often see them go to CTO. That's a, that's a classic thing that happens. That can be incredibly productive uh, if if it, if it works. If it feels good. Um, you also see serial entrepreneurs who say, you know, we're going to take it across the chasm. Somebody's going to scale it. I'll own a significant piece of the equity. When we liquidate the company, I'll take that. I'm going to go back and do it again. And so they just go back over and over again, and they invent company after company after company uh, doing that. And that, that's a second pattern. The third pattern is to say, I want to stay with this thing, and we're doing it organically. A consulting company doesn't typically raise venture capital. right? So in that situation, I think you get to a point where you say, okay, I need to find an organizational structure that supports the goals of not only myself, but the community that we've pulled together here, because it, it's not just you. Right. And so I don't hold everybody back. On the other hand, I, I, I still am able to leverage the things that, that I'm good at. And I saw in the case of IDEO, the interesting thing they did is they, they said, look, in, in each of these geos, we want to find a lead designer Mm -hmm. who is kind of like a micro CEO, kind of like a, let's call him a general manager. Yeah. And you say, you build this thing. And by the way, the, the culture of your city may be different than the culture of our city, but our core values should always be the same. Mm -hmm. And so the issue around values versus, and so that structure would be loosely coupled. By the way, you wouldn't try in this model, you want to make sure your margins are always good enough that you don't have to, get into an optimization mode. Because in an optimization mode, you're going to go to some more rigorous organizational structure, which is going to demand more standardized disciplines. And it's going to kind of get away from that, mm -hmm. that sort of boutique-y feel that I, I'm sure you still have and, right. and, and probably value. Right. There's a one, uh, by the way, Mark Benioff, I spent a bunch of time with Salesforce. He wrote a book called uh, Behind the Cloud. And, and in that book, he, he has a little management method called V2Mom. 
uh, vision, values, methods, obstacles, and metrics. And actually, they use that at Salesforce to this day. They're going from 8 billion to 10 billion. They use the same five things. And the way it works and the way it might apply to a company like yours or like mine, because I do a V2 mom now for myself every year. Okay. So, so the vision is, what are we trying to become here? Mm-hmm. And the values are two or three values that both we think appeal to our customers so that they're kind of why they why they want to work with us, but they're also values that we would not violate no matter what, even even to accomplish our methods. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like both inspirational and guardrails, that idea. And I think getting your values clear, for me at least, is incredibly important. Uh, so make sure I'm, I'm always acting in a way that, that furthers, furthers that. And then the methods are, what are you going to do this year to achieve the vision and the values? And the idea there is, if it's not a method, it's, it's not going to happen. Or at least you're not, you're not making any commitment to it happening. So mm-hmm. anything you're committing to making happening should be a method. And each method is tied to an obstacle or one or more obstacles, meaning what is the most likely thing to defeat me if I were not to achieve this method? And then metrics, how will I know if, if I got there? And then as you scale, what happens as an individual is, obviously, you own all your methods, you own all the obstacles, you own all the, the metrics. If you're in an organization you may that has three or four or five methods, you may say, Harry, you, method number one, Harry is the leader for, method number two, Sherry, method number three, Gary, Larry, and, and Barry, right? And so that, and that's what Mark does. Mark mm-hmm. will have maybe eight to ten methods, he'll have eight to ten executives. Then the executive who gets that method they build their V2 mom around that method. They're, they have a subset of methods. They delegate it to their rep- – and you can see how it kind of cascades mm-hmm. down through the organization. What's great about that is if you join Salesforce today, you will have a V2 mom, and you will be part of some your boss's method who's part of their boss's method all the way up. So it's a cool structure. And I, what I like about it in terms of what this founder issue you're talking about is – I, I think but the choice of values, the, well, the vision, the values, and the methods, by being very thoughtful about those, you can shape the company without having to manage the company in a highly detailed sort of hands-on way, I, give, give people more freedom. So you said you do that yourself? I do that myself. So I started writing my own V2 mom. Yeah. I, I should probably, hold on a minute. <laughs> I'll have it, I have it right here. Let me read you from the front. Okay, so this is my V2 mom for 2017. Uh, Vision, a zone to win, which is my latest book, becomes a go-to management framework for helping enterprises from all sectors meet the challenges and embrace the opportunities of digital disruption. I have two other things. Wildcat Venture Partners, which is a venture firm that's kind of spawned out of a prior firm, will become the, a top quartile venture fund. I'm a venture partner there. I support them. And I continue to serve as a trusted advisor to CEOs for whom I have the highest respect. So that's my vision. That, that's what I want to do. The three values were serve the world by enabling tech companies to have their maximum beneficial app impact, support and empower the people I work with so to be their best selves, and generate exceptional revenue. So those are my three values. And then I have a bunch of methods, and, yeah. and each method has obstacles, et cetera. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. That's... That's great. Oh, cool. You mentioned that you've made the conscious choice not to grow and be huge, right? Yes. In in all of the businesses, and I presume that's still still the case now. Yes. And yet generate exceptional revenue is one of the... the yes. So how do you reconcile those two things? <laughs> Raise your bill rate. <laughs> <laughs> okay. no, to, be, to be absolutely fair, what I've learned about... But the kind of work that, that I do, and mm-hmm. my colleagues have learned the same thing about their businesses. 
it's catalytic consulting in the sense that what we're really trying to do is change the effectiveness of the client group by in, inserting ourselves in our frameworks and not outsourcing work at all. Yeah. Just, I suspect, in some ways, very similar to what, what, you, what you're doing. Right. So what you learn about that is that you become powerful as an individual, not as a group. And the individual, it's like an individual singer. You know, it, 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 singers don't become more powerful by adding four or five people to their act. That the singer is powerful personally, mm -hmm. because you get more and more experience. It's a little like I guess it's like playing chess. You get more and more experience with looking at the board, understanding what it is you're seeing, helping people do pattern recognition on what's going on, and so your ability to advise and and, and also to pressure test their ideas by by questioning them at the right points. Because you you've just you've seen this movie so many times. After a while, you you kind of know where, the, where where to poke your finger, and then you just. You know, you're trying to actually minimize the time with the client because it's like going to a doctor's office. You don't want to spend time with the doctor's office. You want to go to the doctor's office so you can spend time with your life. Well, nobody wants to spend time with a consultant, really. So it's like, come on, you know, let's do whatever we got to do and get out of your way. And, and it's, it's a lot of fun, obviously, as you, as you know as well. So, but so the exceptional, and, and then what happens also in tech is, particularly because I'm associated with a venture firm, but I've also been associated with a lot of startups. You can do things like take stock options. You can get carry in venture firms. I mean, there's ways to generate mm -hmm. exceptional revenue without, without building a, a large company and selling it. Yeah, so that was one of your values, not your methods. And so by having it a value, then you have to reconcile it with all your other values. Then you your methods might be stock options in the things I'm involved in so that you're yeah. not, you're, you're not compromising your values in order to achieve one of those. Right. In fact, in fact, anytime you're compromising your values, you've just set yourself backwards. Yeah. The, the values actually are the energy that bring you into the world and that let the world pull you in to their world. So, you know, one of the, if you want to see an example of the opposite at work, you might look to Washington D.C. at this moment, mm -hmm. uh, because it's just it's a complete mess, and it's a complete mess because the values are just they're all over the right. floor. Right. They're just yeah. And by the way, the thing I, I saw in the paper today, so Wells Fargo's got yet another scandal, and mm -hmm. you know, and and you think, so how the hell did we get off the did we get off the rails that badly? Well, because somewhere along the line, we really did compromise our values and mm -hmm. as they did at Volkswagen Audi with the right. emissions test as you know that's just very very dangerous yeah you mentioned your latest book zone to win yeah and you've written a lot of books since crossing the chasm right um, yes. how do you come up with the ideas where where does it come from the kind of way i try to think about it is i find a problem that i think is a really tough problem it's bothering people it's you know, it's, 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 they're, they're, they're stuck on it, they're, they're, they're kind of trapped, they're frustrated, the performance isn't working very well. And there's no obvious way to solve it because obviously people have been trying to solve it for a while. And you just staple yourself to the problem. You say, I'm not gonna let go. I'm mm -hmm. just, I'm, we're, gonna, we're gonna take this thing to the end. The, the latest problem, Zone to Win, was actually crossing the chasm, but in the context of being an established enterprise. Mm -hmm. And the reason why that's a different problem is that when you give a startup that challenge and then you give funding to a startup they know exactly what they're going to do with that dollar when you give them money they know exactly where they're going to put it. they all have one place to put it and they're either going to win or lose with that thing when you go into an established enterprise and they want to take on the next big wave of technology there's a lot of conflict about what to do with the next dollar particularly if you got to go through a j-curve which is what the book's about where you say look if you're going to catch the next wave you're going to lose a bunch of money before you you make money and you don't have venture capitalists anymore. This is now mm -hmm. 
money that's coming out of your operating budget. And at some point, it's going to actually put your existing businesses at risk because you, there's not enough money to do both. Mm -hmm. And so what most companies have been doing in that situation is they start on the new wave, they get halfway onto it, it's too painful, they worry, but they pull back. And yeah. you've seen it in your clients, I'm sure, mm -hmm. all the time. Yeah. And so this is, a, this is a thing of saying the worst thing, that's the worst thing you can do. It'd be much better not to try to catch the wave at all than to get halfway on and right. get off. Right. And so we're talking about how to, how to, how to actually work. And so the subtitle is Organized to Compete in an Age of Disruption. It's how do you actually organize a large company to successfully catch the next wave. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not, not that everything builds upon crossing the chasm, right? But are some of the techniques similar, but figuring out how to apply them to the context of the larger enterprise? It's interesting. The, the, the techniques are identical. Mm -hmm. the, the problem is not the technique. The problem is, is the resource allocation. Okay. So it's actually, it's an organizational and budgeting problem. And, and what happens in large enterprises is that the next generation incubations get started. They actually get nurtured. But as they try to scale, they then end up competing with the existing businesses for resources. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's where they get lost. That ties directly into what I was going to ask about, because in not exactly resources, but um, attention is a resource. And also marketing, a lot of what Crossing the Chasm focuses on is customizing your marketing message to be very specific to your positioning. Mm -hmm. And we even feel this and we're not that big. It's like, well, what about this? What about this aspect <laughs> of this com of the company? What what about this? You know, it's hard to focus your marketing when you want to be all encompassing. I imagine that that's hard for bigger companies to really focus on. No, this is the new thing we're doing and the marketing needs to be very focused towards this. So so there are two kind of very f sort of fun topics there that sort of adjacent. Let me mention each one. So the first one is you want marketing to be about you. Mm -hmm. The thing you have to remember is nobody ever cares about you, ever. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, your mom does. Your mom, yeah. maybe, you know, you hopefully have a spouse, maybe you have some mm -hmm. kids. But in the world, if you make your marketing about you, you're going to lose. Right. You have to make your marketing about your customer. And you have to, it's got to be a narrative about their life and then how do you fit into their life and what do you bring into their life. So you do get to talk about yourself, but only in the context of the customer dialogue. And, and, and so if, I don't know if you ever saw, but 10 years ago, Microsoft did a hysterical self-parody video about if they had designed the iPod box just to market the iPod. Mm -hmm. And the box gets more and more complicated. It has offers on it. It's got all, it's got the complete specs of the, of the product. I mean, it has a fold out piece. It goes on and on and on because they're talking about themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So one thing about marketing is you just have to realize you, you, you have this speech about yourself, but it has to end up on the editing floor by the time you're done. You can mm -hmm. say it, but they get mm -hmm. it out of your face. You move it. But the other thing then is when you look at this, the, the more challenging thing, which is, okay, I got over that. There's still an issue of saying, yeah, well, hang on, though. Should we be marketing the new thing? We've got a lot of these successful consulting lines that we should continue to sustain. How do we do that? And that's where the zones came in. And what we wanted to say is, look, there are two clear zones of performance in the company. One around sustaining the existing lines of business and one about incubating the new lines of business. And they need to be managed separately because the new lines of business need to have their own voice. And that voice will not be the voice of the established lines of business because this is the next generation. No kid wants to sound like his dad. Right. You know, I want to be different and, and I need to be different. And so having that ability to have that second voice and that's fine, by the way 
companies handle that fine as long as that second voice is little and kind of at the periphery. Mm -hmm. But when you try to scale that second voice, and now all of a sudden he wants to join hands with the existing business and become part of the establishment, as it were, that's when you have the challenges. Mm -hmm. And that has to be, that's where the CEO's leadership becomes. The CEO has to say, look, we want this thing to happen. We know we're all going to have to change our tone of voice in some way. We're going to do this. We're not going to let the established business suppress the new business, which is the default option. This is all great. I really, really appreciate your thoughts. Not only do I think this is valuable to listeners, it's very personally valuable to ThoughtBot. And I really appreciate that. Well, cool. Well, what about your vision and your values? I mean, as you're thinking about these, do, you, do they come to mind quickly? What does the world want ThoughtBot to be? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think that our vision and values have been very clear. I think that it has been not clear to us whether we can maintain the values that we have and cross the chasm. So to the extent that we had those early mistakes in places like Sweden that then caused us to have to take a step back from what we thought we were doing, and to the extent that we've been facing a lot of tension as we've grown to serve early majority, that has caused a lack of clarity and vision because to some extent we had one and we've been bumping up against that wall or falling off the chasm, so to speak. And it's caused us to say, well, what is the vision then? Why are we, why are we even doing this? And I, I think that these conversations have been very healthy in reaffirming the idea that we don't need to cross the chasm. We can continue to stay small, continue to stay exciting and excited in our work and working the way that we always have. But what that probably means we need to do is realize that that's what we're doing <laughs> so that we don't then latch onto a specific technology that may have been attractive to early adopters and we're early adopters ourselves and then try to take that across the chasm. Instead, we should always be seeking out new and exciting work and opportunities and strategies. So like we did design thinking as well very early on. And that's one of the things that has happened to us as it's gone mainstream very quickly. And if what we're doing is not crossing the chasm with it, then we need to find the next new thing that's going to make our work even better. And early adopters will come along with us for that ride. And we need to do a better job of building a channel to those early adopters who want to listen to what we have going and will either continue to buy from us or spread the word about what we're doing. I want to reinforce that in a couple of ways that I think are important. First of all, if you look at the technology adoption lifecycle and you say what business models are optimal for what places, if you, if you work kind of from back to front, at the very back, anything that's like a managed service or an OEM uh, technology that's sort of built into the product is great for a conservative. They get the benefit of it. They don't actually have to confront it at all. The business model for pragmatists tends to be some combination of, it used to be a product to systems model, increasingly now it's an as a service model. If it's a little bit challenging, it's more of a managed service, if it's a little bit more commoditized, you know, I just want to get it uh, kind of integrated into the service. But prior to the chasm, and then at the crossing the chasm, when we're talking to those pragmatists in pain, that's a solution business model. It's about 50% consulting, 50% product, because it is very vertically specific. You know, you, one for retail, different one for healthcare, different mm -hmm. thing for education. And then in the early market, it's almost always projects. 
one-off projects for, for visionary people. So, so just to reinforce what you say, if you like that kind of work, it's designed specifically to support the er, er, what we call the early market situation. Mm-hmm. And, and, and obviously it appeals to you emotionally and it also, it, it, there's real value. But you, but so then what happens is, so then you get, let's suppose that blockchain's your next big thing. Right. So blockchain's early market right now. There'll be a bunch of very exciting things to do it. But we all know at some point blockchain's going to cross the chasm. Mm-hmm. At that point, you may have a team in your company that wants to follow blockchain. Right. You should let it go. Right. What you don't want to do is try to hold it captive because now you're going to force your company to be a hybrid model, and I think that's going to be too challenging. Mm-hmm. But I think you could you could let it go and, and even encourage people to. And by the way, there'll be people that in your company that you'll realize they're not that great a fit for the early market, but your customers love them. They should probably go to your customers. In other words, you let people kind of go to the place in the life cycle where their talents get the most reward. Mm-hmm. But I think your personal vision, and I think the kind of the image or the positioning of your company, I feels very much like we'd like to take on the next technology challenge and figure out how to make that available to the rest of the world. Yeah. By the way, cool job. It doesn't scale, but, <laughs> but, but it keeps you coming to work for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you're right that doing a hybrid model would be very challenging. I think there's a possibility that we could have two branches or two templates or even a separate organization that took those technologies that had crossed the chasm and helped people execute on them. It's a little bit more staff augmentation kind of thing. There's something there, but it, I, I think you're absolutely right that it would be more, it's more challenging to serve two segments at once. Right. There's no question that the world wants both. Mm-hmm. So if you could find a way to do that that didn't break your company and there's a big market for the thing that you're not doing right now or yeah. you're doing it, you're doing kind of un- reluctantly. So if you say, well, look, if we're going to get dragged into this over and over again, we can't be reluctant about it because all we're doing is dragging our own feet and slowing down the customer. That can't be the right answer. So either we have to say no or we have to figure out some second outpost where we do that business out of a different structure. Mm-hmm. It might be interesting to experiment with that and see how far you could get with it because the world would love for you to do both mm-hmm. uh, if it didn't break your company. Yeah. Well, Jeffrey, I really appreciate it. Again, thank you so much. Cool. And where can people follow you or learn more about? Yeah, so it's good. Well, I'm on LinkedIn. So I think probably mm-hmm. the, I have a blog on LinkedIn, which is kind of where I try to stay current with things. And then there's a website, jeffreyamore.com. So you can kind of go there and sort of get materials. And I try to, um, if there's YouTube stuff or whatever, the latest book zone to win is for the crossing the chasm problem inside the large enterprise for entrepreneurs like yourself. The third edition of crossing the chasm, I I updated it about three or four years ago so that I could put in companies that people had actually heard of. (laughs) Uh, So so, uh, the new case studies were, although they included Salesforce and Workday and Box and, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Aruba, some of the more, the companies that are a little bit more familiar to readers Mm -hmm. of this coming generation. So anyway, that's what's going on. And I continue to stay current with that. My vision and my values say, as long as I can be catalytic, I would like to continue to be so. Wonderful. Thanks so much. Take care. And that about does it for today's episode of the Giant Robots Smashing Other Giant Robots podcast. You can find show notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm slash 248. This episode was produced by Tom Obarski. Thank you so much for listening.